0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Greg's Garage Pod with co-host Jason Pridmore, presented by Bike911.com. Need a motorcycle lawyer? Reach out to Alex Asante at Bike911.com. He's got you covered, especially if you're in California. Go check that out. Jason Pridmore is here. Hi, Jason. What is is up, Greg? Well, you know, just uh, it's Wednesday night. We're a little late getting this thing rolling, but hopefully some people will download this and listen to it as... We are talking about (laughs) Moto America Laguna and the great racing it was and the one massive just kind of slap in the in the face situation. But um, we're going to be talking about Laguna Seca Moto America. We're going to preview a little bit of World Superbike. We'll talk some pro moto a little bit and, uh,
1: you know, some Mariah news. So anything to update us, JP? No, I just got on your life. I just got home today. So, I literally just got home today. So, from Laguna. So, I was, I rode up there on Monday. It was a Ducati Revs event and it was a blast. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Like Carlos Checa, Tony Elias, um, obviously Wayne Zemski. Wayne was there. Zemke, of course. Jake. Uh, Jake was there. Jason Uribe was there. There was a, there was like a, just a ton of Aaron guys was there. there. I'd imagine. Um, Josh, yep. Josh was there. Ham was there burning up tires and doing, Sick stand-up wheelie. Dude, the kid can wheelie. Uh, he can, dude. Dude. I know. I watched him up the front straightaway just laughing because the thing is teetering and it is like vertical. And I'm like, hmm. And I'm like, if Biagi was here, I wonder what Biagi would say. Remember when Biagi had that hole?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. We went past the no point of no return and saved yeah. it? No, he's...
1: Yeah, he's... But anyways, yeah. It was, it was really cool. I had a lot of fun and um got to see some friends that I haven't seen in a while. And... um I was up there with my good friend Gustavo and, uh, we dude, I rode a Ducati street fighter with the V four engine in it. Yeah, that is, that is trouble. That bike, <laughs> like, yeah, it was so fun. I, I started getting the hang of it obviously by midday and I was like, this is a pretty good time. And it's, uh, it was weird because I couldn't understand why like my neck and stuff was hurting. And I'm like, when was the last time I rode a bike with, with no fairing, no fairing? at all. And I'm like, on this bike here, it would just be 100% anarchy on the street. Like, just nuts. So, yeah. It was a good time. I had fun.
0: Sorry. What are you doing? There was just some crazy noise that was going on. Oh, yeah? It's because, like, a couple of weeks ago, I bought a foot massager. Cute. Like, it, massage your feet and heat your feet and stuff. Uh-huh. So. That's great, great. And it turns on it made so,
1: so that's yeah. the, that's what that's what's going on right now.
0: No, I ah. accidentally hit it. It's got big buttons in the middle, but mm, anyway. Cute. Well, good for you. I guess I guess that's a good cue to to start our news presented by REI. Let's do it. Okay. Well, let's see here. You know, for three generations REI's been making some of the world's best helmets and of course, REI helmets meets all safety standards but they also pride themselves on a blend of engineering tech and human craftsmanship that makes an Arai helmet fit better and feel better, which also protects you better. Your head's worth the very best. Visit Arai America's. uh, That's with an S. Dot com. Doot, 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 doot. All right. Let's talk about some news. There were, there's more news items than I have in here, Jay. Yep. But I just kind of wanted to pick out a couple because I, you know, want to spend some time doing this Moto America stuff. Um, Andrea Iannone in the news. <clears throat> the mm-hmm. Italian is linked to a return to racing. been out for four years. Positive blood or positive drug test, right? He claims it was tainted meat. They, they said two year ban. He said, I want the second sample tested or whatever it was. They were like, if you do this and you mit and you fail, it's a four year ban. And so he's like, no, I'm convinced I'm, I'm innocent he went, they did, went to arbitration. He lost. And I believe the four, four year ban is up in December. So he has been linked with world Superbike Ducati, go 11 or Barney. That mm. uh, Barney's kind of waiting for Petrucci and what he's going to do, mm. you know? Yeah. But what do you think about Andrea Ianoni coming back to the mix?
1: First off, I think he's got a raw deal on that whole thing. I think it's just ridiculous. Like, I don't know what, what, perf- I mean, it's so funny to me, like. Okay, tainted meat. It could be. It couldn't be. Why would you? Why would you know that you're cheating and want a second sample to be done, knowing that they're going to ban you for four years instead of two? I would think that. I would think that. I would have to know that I'm very innocent to say, "Hey, go get the second one," because obviously the first one's done. So I don't know. It's such a weird deal to me. And I mean, I I don't. If
0: you know cycling the I way would, I do I was just going to ask you about that. Saying. I was just going to ask yeah. you about
1: that. Like e-
0: yeah. everybody always did it because they know they're guilty and so they just profess right? innocence and then they would they would go just like you're saying. Well, if I if I was guilty, why would I, you know, why would I ask for the second say why would I protest? whatever it was? Yeah. this the beat the B sample. Like there's some people that got busted that were like, "Yeah, you don't need to test the B sample. We're good." So in other words, what happens, folks, is when they take a sample. So you think it's an it only ego thing? No, I think it's a. Um, I think it's a. See, I mean, yeah, I guess it's it's kind of like. See, I told you I was innocent. Why would I? Why would I? Why would I fight it if I knew I was guilty? But, and I'm not. I'm not saying that he. Like, it's such a weird situation, right? It's kind of like the situation, Jason, where you go, well. The rider didn't cause the red flag. Oh, The dangerous condition caused the red flag. You're going to start me on this this early? Mm -mm. What I'm saying is... Greg's trying to get me sent down a path here right now. It doesn't (laughs) matter how, how he got the drugs in his system. Yeah. It matters that the drugs are in his system. So cycling, the Tour de France, absolutely famous in the early 2000s, maybe even in the 90s, of teams going to these different towns in France... And they basically get an entire hotel, right? The teams do. Be- and they have their own personal chefs come in, clean the kitchens, cook the food. So, because teams, other teams were coming into their kitchen and putting illegal Tasting substances it. in. Wow. The- yes. So it doesn't matter that they had the you drug mean. in their system, right? You know what I mean? It just
1: matters that they had the drug in their system, not how it got there. Somebody so- slid something in your, in your, in your Pepsi without you like that kind of thing. Like, right. 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 You right. might think it was tainted meat, but maybe it wasn't tainted meat. It could have been something else that something. Yeah. I know what you mean. It, it could have been. How big know, of it, a performance looked, advantage did Andrea and Anoni have with this though? I wonder.
0: Uh, 0.0. Yeah. Guys fit. You know what I mean? That's like, what I'm
1: saying. I, I
0: don't. And that, but, but it's a banned substance
1: nonetheless. With what you, you know, know and, about like USADA and all that stuff with, mm-hmm. with like how much of that stuff, is and, and our listeners will probably let us know, but how much of the stuff from cycling do you think would truly be applicable to a guy racing a motorcycle?
0: Um, well, drugs like EPO for sure, mm-hmm. right? Because it's going to increase your endurance. Yep. Yeah. I mean, see, see, this is the thing, and this is where like things want, get a little yeah, bit complicated. Yeah. World Anti-Doping Agency says across the board these are banned substances. Okay. It doesn't always have to be performance enhancing or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause, cause, cause like beta blockers aren't performance enhancers, but they keep your heart rate below 150 beats a minute. Yep. So in, in high pressure situations, they, you know, like archery is a perfect example where beta blockers have been used to try to keep nerves down and those types of things. So it's just a list of banned substances. And then basically you, you have to figure out sport to sport what, what advantage you would have, right. but there are plenty of, Plenty of things in cycling that would directly relate to motorcycle racing. What, do you know what he got? busted That would for not it, right? directly relate to say archery, huh? Do you know?
1: Do you, do you personally know? I don't. I'm asking. What do you know? What it was that he actually did to? Yeah, I know
0: the drug, and I remember looking it up. It was a. Uh, it was a, like an. I think it was a form of HGH, a human human growth hormone. Yeah. I mean the the the, the problem with Ianoni is is that he was also a model on the side, right? Yep. And so you look at that and you go, well, maybe he wasn't doing it to get a better performance on a motorcycle. Maybe he was doing it to stay shredded. you know, Because he was modeling and doing all this kind of stuff. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, look. Well, either way. Again, I don't know if he's he's guilty of doing it himself. Like that's, again, it's irrelevant. It's just the fact that they did find it in there. They tested both samples. They found it in both samples. That's the reason. So when, when you get tested... Let's just say it's a urine sample, for instance, or a blood sample. Yep. they'll take two. They take an A sample and a B sample. They test the A sample. The B sample goes basically into, you know, into like uh, the archives. Goes into a fridge or whatever. Yeah, that's how. That's part of the reason they were able to bust like Lance because Lance Armstrong because the technology advanced to the point where the masking agents that he was using for the EPO which of course increases your white blood cells, increases your oxygenation in your blood, makes you feel like an absolute superstar. Think, you know, think about your best day ever on a bicycle or best in your case, best day running. Okay. And you feel like that every single day you wake up. Yeah. you never have a day where you're tired. Yeah. That's what EPO will do for you. And then there's human growth hormone. There's testosterone. You know, there's a lot of stuff that in cycling that would definitely help. Now EPO at this point, I haven't kept up with it, but I have to imagine EPO is just an old, it's an old acronym for an old drug. They've gone way beyond, yeah, it yeah, yeah, because they've sure. already figured out how to mask it. But, but the idea is exactly the same. How do you oxygenate your blood? How do you basically maximize your kilowatt to to uh, watt output or your kilogram to watt output on a bicycle? Yeah, and the Tour de France is going on right now, and I mean I'm just watching these these skinny dudes just climb like mountain goats up steep hills and it's just gnarly as can be so my next question <laughs> so. since
1: we went on this drug related issue here Ian ianoni yeah. let's get back to the point what's yeah. your feeling like we know he's been over there riding in aprilia and apparently now he's riding a ducati at track days and that kind of thing so like i think he's got to be what 31 32 years old now uh probably yeah i would guess like so world superbike seems like the landing spot what do you like, what are you expecting out of a guy like that? I mean, there's just so many like thirty-three. There's so he'll so be... much stuff to unpack there with him at thirty-three years old. What's he got? He could probably go till his forty, be an earner if he's uh if he's strong, capable enough, still wants it bad enough, you know, whatever, all those things. Like what's what's the ceiling? What do you think he does? If he gets on a Barney bike or go eleven, which is Odell's team, right? You got Odell's team and Barney's with Petrucci. There's mm-hmm. talk of Petrucci's team running two bikes. Correct. So my first question, I got two for you. I'm, I'm interviewing you now, just in case you didn't know. Uh, how do you think he does? What does he do?
0: I think it depends a lot on on Ducati's view of him at this point. You know, he raced for Aprilia and then he raced for Suzuki. Yeah. So I think if Ducati's really hot on him, and they give him the right equipment. Yep. I think that it's I think it's I mean the guy was a talented racer. There's no question. I mean, he didn't he win on a Suzuki when it was like not really winning, or he definitely put the yep. thing on the podium. Yep. Um it's dude, think about how much bikes have changed in four years. Well, yeah. So we'll I see. Mean, that, that, we'll see I, guess that's, I guess
1: that's my next question, right? Is like uh, stuff has I mean, he's changed. It's changed a lot, right? I mean... I mean, let's put it this way. I have the point of view
0: that talent is harder to showcase on this latest crop of MotoGP bikes Mm -hmm. than it's ever been because the bikes are so similar, especially if you're on a Ducati. Yeah. It's harder to showcase. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's harder to showcase. Yeah. But... And that's why you see... You know such close racing. Yeah, he goes to World Superbike. He's a bigger dude, right? He's five foot ten. You know, so he gets on a bike that's been developed by a dude who's five foot four, five foot
1: five, right? And yeah. Batista, I don't know. He, I mean, he raced. I mean, he was Ianoni in my recollection. I mean, when I think back to him, I mean, I remember him racing Marquez in Moto Two and stuff like that, like competitive, like hard. I mean, he was. I think he's, he's only got look, he's, what's he got? Is he got one? I, I'd have to look it up, though. But has he got one MotoGP win or two? I think he's only got one. I think he did it on a Ducati, but I know he was on I know he'd been on podiums and stuff on uh, on the Suzuki. I know I think he had. And I think he'd even got a couple pole positions. I, I can't remember, but he got one win, one win okay, he has on one. the GP sixteen
0: ah, in two thousand sixteen. Okay. okay. He got four podiums on the Suzuki. Then he went to Aprilia and then he got, yeah. Oh, he went to, he was on the Ducati and a Suzuki.
1: I wonder how many podiums. He was
0: on Pramac, then he went Factory. That's right. If you remember, he went Factory in 15, 16. Yep. And then he went to Suzuki um, where he got no podiums in 17 and 4 and 18 and then off to Aprilia. The guy's a super talented motorcycle racer. I mean, he's got 13 wins in his career total. Yep. He won 125 races. He won seven, eight Moto2 races. Like, he's very talented. Yep. The best championship, though, was third in Moto2 in 2010, 2011, 2012 on different, you know, speed-up suitor and a speed-up. So... Uh, you know, is he a championship guy? I don't know. Let me ask you this, novelty? just for fun. I don't know,
1: but just, just for fun, since you've looked him up, okay? Who, yeah. who's more successful, Petrucci or him? Or are you gonna go look up Petrucci? I'm just going off the top of my head here. I'm, I'm saying, you look at MotoGP. To yeah. me, it's not close. I think it's, it's Iannone all i day. think Iannone. I think who? Iannone. Yeah. Petrucci got Petrucci. No, yeah. Iannone. I, I, I mean, yeah. I don't know how many years he was in it compared to Petrucci and you got to remember Petrucci rode shit bikes really at the start of his MotoGP career. So all of his starts are a little bit thwarted on that, but I don't know if factory Ducati to factory Ducati riders, I think they were both there for a couple of years. I wonder, but I just think it's an interesting, the whole thing with Ianoni. boy, did we spend a lot of time on this We're 18 minutes in the podcast. We're still talking about the same thing. So it's going to be interesting to see. I know there's going to be an announcement tomorrow. Um, Maybe tomorrow? On something that's happening in World Superbike, possibly. So that'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, yeah, I mean, I know that's gonna happen. I don't know when they make an announcement on Ianoni. I don't know how that works or where it goes. I know that there's some people from MotoGP, Um, you know, like the like Fabio Di Giantonio and some of them that are being talked about.
0: No, Ianoni doesn't go. No, there's there's too many people, there's too few spots. MotoGP. He's never going to be back in MotoGP. No, no, no. Story. I'm talking
1: about guys coming from MotoGP to World Superbike.
0: Oh, okay. Well, oh,
1: yeah, yeah. Like if yeah, Digi Antonio, if Digi Antonio gets shuffled uh, to World Superbike, where does he go? Like, is that a potential spot that he's taken from an Ianoni? Right. So it's does Ianoni end up in like uh, Italian Superbike or is is I mean, you know?
0: No, nah, I think Ianoni ends up in, in on a Ducati in World Superbike. Ducati. Yep is very loyal to the people that they love. You know, the Chavi, Fores of the world, the Petrucci's of the world. <laughs> I think Ianoni will, will fall in that mix. They just, they love it. They love their Italian. So we'll see. Yep. You know, and, and, and speaking of that, um, if you remember, I spoke about two Suzuki slots in MotoGP that are now open, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I remember you said twenty-two. That, yeah. 22 regular riders on the grid. Well, As I mentioned that, I think it was last podcast, Gascast Tech 3 guy, Herve Ponchera, my boy, said in an interview, quote, in 2024, there will continue to be 22 bikes on the MotoGP grid. Two seats vacated last year by Suzuki are coveted by many. Hmm. Uh, uh, What did I put here? I have no idea. Apparently, I never proved my typing. But basically, (laughs) KTM, specifically KTM could use the extra seats for Pedro Acosta. But the championship leaders, meaning basically Dorna, are adamant about their decision to assign the two slots to a manufacturer. So who might that be? Herve Herve says that the manufacturer could be either BMW or Kawasaki, Hmm. eventually, maybe in 2025, getting to 24 slots, six manufacturers. So what are your thoughts about that? Knowing kind of the conversation we talked about last week and knowing the fact that like at my advanced age and not having been in MotoGP paddock, I still know my shit. Boom. <laughs> Get off your goddamn phone. I swear to fuck. We can all hear Listen it Listen to you. Yeah, it's on my, it's on my desk.
1: I, we can all hear it Vibrate. Good. I hope everybody loves hearing it. It's great. Anyway, back to the news. It's driving you nuts, but it's just the way it is, Greg. So answer the question. who do you see coming back? Do I need to to read it to you again? No, no, no. I think. Look, I don't even know how he says that. I don't see BMW getting in MotoGP, and I don't see Kawasaki. Kawasaki's got way bigger issues right now. I think, even in a production class, and I don't. I don't think that they come back. I, I don't even know if Kawasaki ever comes back, right, to MotoGP. But see. He's on the inside. He's going to know a lot more than we do, and a BMW project is super intriguing. I think, but don't you think that they want to? Don't you think that they want to be moderately successful in World Superbike before they were to move to MotoGP? And 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 I guess the question I would ask back is: Is BMW successful right now in World Superbike? I mean, have they been in the last three or four years? Would you deem them to be successful? And. I can't, I don't know why I would deem them to be successful at all the last four years.
0: All right. So if I look at it from this perspective, uh-huh. okay, that MotoGP showcases your height of technology. Yep. Kawasaki, like if you look at the Japanese brands, right? Yep. The Yamaha R1 is on its way out the door. Honda's not even making a bike to speak of, you know, that they sell in the U.S. Yep. That, you know, Suzuki's bike hasn't been, you know, changed since 2015 or whatever it is. 16 and kawasaki still makes the zx 10 but they don't do anything with it in states which and the reason i bring the states up is because half the thousands are you know are sold here in the united states still to this day yeah around the world so if you look at that and you go well the japanese have more or less abandoned sport bikes they've definitely abandoned the leader class yep but although ktm and the president of KTM says he will never make a superbike again. You know the RC8 was the last of it, or whatever. I'm not sure that that's going to be the case. Number one, number two, Ducati continues to innovate on their superbikes. They continue to bring the innovation to the street. Yep, and so does BMW. Yep. Okay, in Moto America, we see the R1 struggling because that bike hasn't changed really. It's had a motor update, but bike hasn't changed since 2015 and yet you have a BMW that introduced an M1000RR last year and then came out with a newer version the very right. next year, and you have a bike that continues to evolve and innovate. Just look at the power output, look at the arrow for, for Ducati. So of those two, I would think, as you think, that it would make more sense that BMW might want to yeah. take on yeah. a MotoGP project because they also know how to make a super fast motor without a supercharger. And they got, they probably have a lot of
1: technology with cars and all that stuff too.
0: Yeah, 100%. You know, so there's, so, uh, but I agree with you. How do you, as BMW, justify going MotoGP racing when you can't get your street bike to work? Now, with that said, there might be an argument inside of BMW that says, hey, look, this is different. We got to make a street bike a street bike, and this is why we build this, and we have to, you know, now, Gloves are off and we can do whatever we want to do and all that kind of stuff. You know what's really funny
1: about everything that you're saying right now because I'm kind of looking at things and I'm thinking Honda street bike wise has kind of gone way, way backwards. Like like we always talked about, there was always a time when Honda, all their street bikes were just incredible bikes. The bikes they have right now are fine. Like the CBR 1000 is a cool bike, but that's not the one that everybody talks about, right? And then their MotoGP effort is literally non-existent. The R1, which has been so dominant and done very, very well, now isn't. And the Yamaha Moto GP project is not either. Right? So you look at those two companies. Oof, oof. Suzuki. Like, I would argue to say that the Suzuki Moto GP bike when they quit is as good or maybe even a little better than the Honda is now. Like, I think that they could have made it better still. Like, who was the guy that went to Honda G Dub? The the um yeah, Ken. Um, yeah, yeah, him. Yeah. Don't you think he just comes to a point where he opens up the Suzuki, here's the geometry that we used on this bike, here's what we did, here's how. I mean, because right now Honda seems lost. And, and every day you get on there and you see that Mark Marquez is – I mean, the, the thing a couple of weeks ago with Pons coming out and uh, – or not pseudo Pons, sorry. Um, oh, Greg, I'm just drawing a blank. Who's the Grassini? No, who's the manager at Honda? No, the, the main guy at Honda. Why have I just drawn? Um, <laughs> anyways, drawn a complete blank here. Who's the team the guy that runs the team at Honda? Uh, oh, oh, you talking about boy? Um, yeah, sorry everybody, we're a little tired. Obviously, as you can yeah. tell, we've been going pretty hard here. Um, I can't believe it. I can't think of it. And everyone, yeah, the manager, everyone, guy, everyone right, right now yeah. is yelling at us. It's such and such. It's like, yeah, we got it. We, we're blowing it. Um, anyways. A lot of the talks right now are about like Marquez isn't happy and Honda has more or less said, "Hey, if he's not happy, and he he wants to roll." There's the door type of thing, you know? It's it's really Well, weird.
0: what's interesting is Nakagami came out and I I don't know if I saw this on crash.net or there Nakagami came out here recently last couple of days and he basically said last year that everybody was running their own program, that they had four different riders and everybody was going in a different development direction that nobody was sharing information because they were all going in their own different directions with their crew chiefs. Uh And that's why things have been such a mess because there hasn't been like a single focal point in terms of development and direction. Yeah. And that would make, that would also make a lot of sense in terms of if you're not able to share data because you're going in different directions and you're trying to basically, you know, Pull something in four different directions—it's gonna be a nightmare. Yeah, but anyway, that—that's them. I mean, Honda's whatever at this point. You know, there was a there was a post by Rafa Nadal. I guess Marquez went to visit his um, his tennis camp. Alberto Pug. By the way, everybody,
1: we sorry. Alberto Pug. Sorry, I'm just losing it. Sorry, just came to me. So Nadal Nadal
0: posted something on Instagram with a picture of um, Marquez, and he said, like. Good luck in your future endeavors, or your like, what's next, or whatever. And so the whole world's going, oh, oh the doll really? gave away the secret that Marquez is going to be leaving Honda oh, or God. whatever. Yeah,
1: not necessarily so, the look. case. I'm now, just saying it's, it's pretty weird. Depends. Like when you talk about BMW and Kawasaki coming to the table. Um. Yeah, I don't see Cowie. I agree with you. If anybody's going to come, it's going to be, be BMW. BMW. Yeah,
0: but I mean, you know, who knows? And you got anyway. a company
1: like KTM. It's like, I mean. Street bike wise, when you think about an, uh, a thousand cc superbike type of thing, it's just non existent. You know, it's like it's not even anything. That... Well, yeah, so much so, so that if you
0: saw the video that was posted, Polo Spargo was on track, right? He, I think he was in Barcelona or whatever. He was on track yesterday. Oh, he was. Around I didn't know a, that. On a a yamaha on an uh r1 rm1 or whatever interesting that thing is called yep yeah on a street bike because ktm doesn't were have like, something for i saw comments people were like what about the rc8 like the, the rc8 rc8 are, are you kidding me get the you have to dust it off a lot when did you and so, i ride those things oh my god 15 at years mid ago ohio like 10
1: years ago at least 10 years ago has to be 2013 or, or 12 or yeah long time ago long time ago i would like where's KTM gonna do they're gonna take an
0: RC8 out of the museum and put them on it? I know. Come on, man. I know. Crazy. Well,
1: way. a lot of stuff going yeah. on there, a lot of stuff to unpack. So um, yeah, 27 Sorry, minutes into this, minutes Pretty wild. In, yeah. Um, and now we're getting to uh nick into the meat of it. Well, let's get let's get to talking about Laguna Seca. Moto America, awesome weekend, great weekend. Didn't start off that way, uh, as everybody probably knows by now. There was some stuff going on with the track and the surface and everything else that, you know, I got a call on Saturday uh, from a really good friend of mine. And he says, Jay, what's going on up there? And I didn't know anything about it. Right, Greg? I didn't know anything. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, hey, listen, I heard this about Road America too. Like Road America is going to be unrideable and it's going to be horrible and we're not going to be able to race there. And then it was literally the best place I've ever been to. So. When it came to this one, I was like, "Like I heard that cars were spinning out and I heard this and that. And it actually turned out to be a little bit true because about an hour later, I got a phone call from Dunlop and this is on Saturday. They were talking about the possibility of maybe having me go up there and ride on Tuesday because of the, the rules, the way the rules are and not letting guys ride prior to the races and this and that. Um, I'm super happy to see that Moto America looked bigger picture here and said, "Listen, for the better of our for the better of our weekend, it's important that we get the Jake Gagne's and the Matthew Sculzes and the Herons and even though I don't think Josh was there, um, but but what I'm saying is, let's get our riders to come and tell us if this place is safe enough to go. Me going out there and running around on a ZX10." You know, eight seconds off the pace isn't going to do anybody anything. So I I was really happy to see Moto America. You know, Joe Roberts was there, I think, on an R1, which was cool. Doing laps. Basically, what Laguna needed was it needed rubber on the track. That's what it needed. And these guys rode a little bit Tuesday. Then they had two practices, one for Superbike, one for Super Sport, on Thursday. And... I mean, Greg, it was I thought it was a great weekend. Overall, after all that stuff was going down and the car burning in the corkscrew and the picture you sent me and all the other stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought, you know, we're gonna have three superbike races. We had to see if the track was capable, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. As
0: soon as the sun came out though, things got better. Gagne told me first thing Friday morning, track's gonna be different every session. You just get more rubber down, more rubber down. We didn't have any rain to wash the brand new rubber away from the racetrack. And it just kept getting better and better to the point, actually, Jay, where grip became a problem. And then it got warm enough on Sunday where the track became greasy for a lot of people. Yeah. And it was so much grip. And and they had two in their motorcycles to not take advantage of the grip because the majority of the bikes we have, they like to 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 spin. You know, everybody's yeah. talking about rotating now, getting the bikes rotated, right? And so, you know, in talking to like Stan Bully is a good example. He's just like, you know, when we look at anti-squat and he was pointing. If you go, you know, to your counter shaft versus your pivot point on your swing arm and your sprocket, top of your sprocket and torque and all this kind of crap. This is what anti-squat is. And he goes, we don't want as much anti-squat because we want to be able to spin the tire. And then some people got caught out on Sunday because they had kind of gone away from your traditional American medium grip racetrack and things got traditional American medium grip on Sunday. Yeah, basically. And that's why we saw some slower races, but overall, uh, you know, I didn't really hear from the complaints on Friday about tearing tires to the complaints on Sunday. There weren't, they were, they were just completely and utterly different. So the track looked, it looked not great. You know, they ground stuff down, There were bumps in places. There's never been bumps before, like the middle of turn four and some other things like that. So we'll see if it gets addressed. Road America America set a high high bar, didn't they? Oh, dude, massive, massively high bar. But anyway, let's get to the races themselves, Jay. Race one, Jake Gagne ends up beating Heron by 5.3 seconds, 5.7 over P.J. Jacobson. That's off the start of an incident with Cameron Beaubier and Cameron Peterson that rendered them – uh, do not start after the red flag. Matthew Skultz was a DNF in that race. Escalante in fourth in race one. Brandon Posh in his debut goes fifth. Really good. He was a lap. He did great, uh, man.
1: That kid did really well all weekend. And last weekend, for those that, you know, I had a couple people, uh, I had one person, I didn't have a couple people talk to me about, they were surprised we didn't talk about Brandon on our podcast. We didn't know. We did our podcast and then literally like 30 we, minutes well, later. Well, we We
0: knew. Well, we, we knew, we, we, but
1: but that but, the, but knew, it hadn't but the, gotten out yet.
0: The press, yeah. Look, we're not going to give away the press release. I Correct. mean, you know, we we live in this paddock, and it's it's Suzuki's right to send out a press release and announce it. Not that's our right. right to
1: do that. That's that's exactly what so, I'm saying. So, Greg and I, we kind of were hoping that the press release was going to come out. I think it came out what an hour after our podcast or something.
0: Yeah, I literally was editing the podcast after we get done, and then boom, the. But it, but dude, it hit at freaking nine o'clock at night, and. It's just so Suzuki to do that. And that, there's a process that these press releases have to go through. And, and they have to go across the seas and come back and people blink, whatever. Yeah. But yeah it, came, it, it was like 9 o'clock at night it hits. And it was like, come on, man.
1: So basically, real but quick, anyway. before we go any further, Brandon Posh did an incredible job this whole weekend. I thought mm-hmm. he did great. I don't think he hit the deck once. And you're talking about
0: 60 laps at race. Yep. Race pace. Wow. Plus. Yeah, the practicing
1: and qualifying. And I think that the other thing you look at is, you know, in race in race one, I forget how far back he was. Cause it has him down a lap, even though he wasn't down a lap. Cause Matthew, because he f- got red flag, yeah, Matthew, red, Matthew, Matthew yeah. slid off, but he was 19 seconds back in the, in the, uh, in the second race, I think. And he was 16 seconds back in the, in the third race. So when you look at it, he, he kept getting better. I think that when you talk about, I mean, it's, it's sad to say, you know, that we look at it like, well, they didn't throw it down once. Yeah, well, that, that should never be the expectation. It should be just kind of the normal. But what this kid has gone through and went through over the last eight months. I mean, look, we both know Brandon. He's worked hard. He's been one of those kids that doesn't have a lot of money behind him. So he kind of lands wherever he lands. He's won. I am I, embarrassed to say. Has he won three Daytona 200s? Two. Three. Two. He's won three, hasn't he? Won he won two didn't, in a row. I thought he won one before that, too. Anyways, Doesn't matter. The thing is. Well, he won
0: two in a row, maybe. No, I'm pretty sure he didn't because of his bonus, but yeah.
1: Anyways, doesn't matter. The thing is, the kid has done extremely well, and for him to get an opportunity, I thought it boded really well for the team to have a young guy like him come in and kind of back up Escalante, who's riding amazing. So anyways, Brandon Posh, great job this weekend, just so you know. Um, All right. Yeah. So let let me go through more results.
0: Let's do it. On Sunday, Bobier wins both races. Gagne in second place in race two, first race on Sunday. Yep. Heron again on the box. Escalante fourth. Just 1.2 behind Heron. Just so close to that podium. Cam Peterson, Matthew Skultz in sixth. Corey Alexander, Brandon Posh in eighth. Hayden Gillum, Max Flinders, PJ Jacobson, and Bobby Fong DNF'd on that one. Uh, Bobier beats Heron. In race number three by six-tenths of a second. Uh, Gagne finishes two seconds back. That's that's another story in itself. Um, Richie Escalante, six-tenths of a second behind Gagne on the leaderboard. But really, he was two seconds, 2.7 seconds back. Cam Peterson finished his fifth. PJ Jacobson, Brandon Posh in seventh. Skultz in eighth. Corey Alexander, ninth. Hayden Gillum in 10th place. Only mm. one DNF in race number three.
1: Um, you just want to skip right to race two and the controversy in race two? Uh, I don't know what the controversy was. Oh, you're talking race two on Sunday. Well, look. Sorry, I, race three. The controversy yeah, the, race three. The, yeah. the, the race three stuff we could talk about, but like a couple like, got to give Heron props. I mean, for the weekend, he had being a little bit battered and beat up. What do you have? Two seconds and a third, I think, on the on the, on two the weekend. Two seconds and a third, yes. Really, really yeah. solid. I think that we could get lost in the Bobie Gagne battle, but people need to remember he's in the middle of this. Like he's capable, he's capable of winning. He's capable of winning these races. And, um, you know, I actually talked to him on Monday, uh, at Laguna and he was very appreciative of the things I said. And I don't, you know, look, I'm going to be critical of anybody when I feel like it's needed. And I don't think I'm ever that critical anyways, but, but I'm also going to get praise because I know what it's like to go through injuries. And I know what it's like to be battling a season and trying to race through them. And all these guys have little bits here and there. Like, Bobier probably had some on Sunday after his incident with Camp Peterson. We know Camp Peterson's going through it right now as well. Uh, And, and Josh is no different. Um, That crash he had at the Ridge was really big. And it's funny because sometimes, sometimes Greg, it, as you know, it could take two, three, four days. It could take a week before you fully know all the things that are wrong with you. Right. I mean, Mm-hmm. these guys were really good about masking stuff and trying to get on with their lives. But at the end of the day, I could see some differences in his writing on Sunday. And I made note of that in the race and the commentary. And he came up to me and, and knowing certain ways he says, yeah, Jay, thanks. You know, you're, you're, you're spot on because I have certain issues and things that I can't quite do. And, you know, he, he, he gave a great interview after the race and, and to his credit, didn't want to give like, didn't want to give it away that like, oh no, everything's great, but you can tell, you know, you can tell. So, Heron rode. Heron rode really well. Richie Escalante, Greg. What can you say about him on the weekend? Um, they've got this. They've got this Suzuki, two point seven away from winning races, like two point seven away from winning races with a guy who hasn't won a superbike race. I think. I think it's testament to the team. You know, you, you got to remember
0: that Richie Escalante was kind of a podium finisher, a fifth place guy in Super Sport. And then came onto the scene and just started winning. I mean, just winning. And I just think that Escalante is more of the type of rider that you need to invest in, that you need to give him time, and he needs to build his confidence and and build up because he didn't. He was in our series for a long time before he ever sniffed the podium. You're right. And I think that, that that this is what's happening. I think there's been improve. I know there's been improvements on the bike. There's been improvements to the motor. There's been improvements to the electronics, and I think Escalante is getting used to it. Is this the result we're going to see from him the rest of the season? I hope so. Yeah. But definitely Laguna, the way you ride it with a superbike, especially when there was tons of grip, mm-hmm. and this is why I was really happy to see him do as well. Uh, race three when it got greasy. Yep. Was the riders commenting to me, especially Jake Kanye early on? He's like, I have to learn how to ride this superbike like a 600. Because I can't get it. This is when there was so much grip in the rear. Okay. I can't get it turned in on the meat of the tire. We saw later on, especially race three, uh, Gagne was able to just get the bike rotated, get it up on the meat of the tire, and drive it the way he wants to. And that's why, you, you know, let's go back and watch those races and watch Bobier just railing through the corner with the front end. Yeah, This is why we say that... Cameron tends to be more of a front-end rider and Gagne tends to be more of a rear-end rider. If you watch those two racing, which is something that we were dying to see for a long time, you can definitely see the way that those two go about it, especially coming off of Turn 11 onto the front straightaway early I, on in the
1: race. I was super impressed, though, with the changes that they made to Gagne's bike between, you know, on, when we're talking Sunday here, um, the first and second superbike races on Sunday. Um, it was like... You could tell at the beginning of the race the, the race three there that Gagne wasn't as comfortable and he was probably waiting for some things to come to him. And they did. And the charge he was able to put on late in the race, I thought was incredible because he really hunted down Heron and Bobia from a long way back. I also think that Heron being who he is and fighting all the time uh, with the leaders, like he's, I mean, Greg, I don't know of too many guys that like get past and then fire right back in and like, they're not as scared to go right back at him. And I think that... Um, I wouldn't say he caught Cameron out, but Cameron didn't have the ability to do the things in race three that he did in race two, because he was going against the Ducati and not a Yamaha, you know? Yeah. And I, and I yeah. also feel that he didn't have the speed advantage. That's right. And I think with Gagne, they, they can actually, at the end of the day, he ends up finishing third because of a silly penalty. Um, and I think that, that he actually finished second on track and he was literally right behind Cameron when they came across the line. Like, for all intents and purposes, it looked like Gagne had the race But another five laps, had the ability to maybe do something there if, if that was the case. And I think that the Yamaha boys and Richard and, and all the attack crew can hang their hat on that and go, hey, we may have either A, found something or B, we, we can go a direction now where the longevity wise, we can make this thing a little bit better for Jake. So he has something to fight with at the end of these races.
0: Which if you look at the championship and the lead that Gagne has in this championship because of how things worked out, he's got 34 over Bobier. he's got 39 over Heron. That really plays in their favor because we at Pit Race, we have three more races at Pit Race. So the Is it 3 or, I thought gap, it was Coda.
1: I thought it was Coda, Greg.
0: No, it's not. I it's I, I at Pitt. Double, double checked it with Hannah's help. It's Wow. At it, That's great. 3 at Pit it's yeah. great for Yamaha, right? It's because great for us. <laughs> it's great for us yeah, too, yeah. yeah. But it's great. But but if you look at it, it, you know, you have to say that because of the speed difference, it's not like Stan is going to be able to reach into some magic pile of parts and all of a sudden get a, a, a you know uh, an, an eight-year-old R1 to go as fast as a brand new Ducati or brand right. new BMW in terms of speed. Yeah. Acceleration seems to be okay, but it's that top speed that's the problem. So, and I'm not saying you're giving the races away at Coda, but I'm saying if you look across the board and you go, okay, we got pit, we got Brainerd coming up. Okay. Gagne can go really good at Brainerd. There's not super long straightaways there anymore. It's a tight twisty section heading, you know, like that whole coming back towards us. You have pit race, you have a low grip, New Jersey, you have Coda
1: and then is that it? That's it. That's all we have left. You're still looking at it the way, yeah. That's that's it. But you're looking at it the way I looked at it. And then my whole theory on everything has changed now. Like the BMW is just going to be good everywhere. It's not going to be bad anywhere.
0: No, no, no. I agree. You know I mean? agree. But what I'm saying is the BMW being as good as it is. Yeah. And you add speed to it. Yeah. That I think that that the the, the there, there's a larger margin. Like like what's what do you think the would you say that the Ducati and the BMW are now of equal level or even even better than
1: the R1? I would agree. You know, the thing too is really funny talking about this is it, it looked really, really difficult for Cameron to go past the Yamaha or the Ducati at Laguna. Like like there were places where the strengths of the BMW couldn't really play itself out. Okay. So like, right. like so when that, you look at like, the ridge, he was able to go by Gagne down that front straightaway, right? Which is... So wild. Yeah. He was able to get up alongside of him. And even though Bobier was so superior through like turns three and four, like for argument's sake, remember what we were talking about in race three when Heron was a lot tighter going into turn three.
0: Mm-hmm. It's because he
1: had to backshift to second there. He couldn't roll it in ah. third. He couldn't roll it in third. So it just goes to show you what corner speed is and what roll speed actually is. Right. Because Bobier was going through there in third and being able, I, I think, I think he might've had a taller second gear. Cause I do believe he was upshifting between turns three and four. But regardless of any of that, the way the gears, the gearboxes were on the Ducati, he couldn't roll that in third. He felt like he was going to lose the front. So he had to go back to second. And that's why he was getting overslowed in the middle. But even though Bobier was a little better through turn four, uh, Heron was utilizing the, the torque and the power of the Ducati to just jump out enough to where it made it really difficult for Bobier to do anything with him down into five, where with Gagne, it just looked like that was, like it just looked easier. And as it worked out, he ended up going by him up the front straight away, anyways. So I would say to your so, point on something: if at Pittsburgh we have a race where Gagne gets in front, it's a hard place to pass because of all the undulations, you know, great going up over those hills. Right.
0: So and yeah. So what you know? Okay. So I've told this story before years ago, but formerly USA back in the day rode Atlanta Fritz Kling on a Yamaha Monster and flit, Fritz. He's passed away now, but Fritz was what, Jay? 6'2"? Oh, no, Maybe? six
1: six four. He six, was a four. lot taller than me, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. So so 6'4", Fritz Kling on a Yama Monster. It was an FC 1000 versus Rich Oliver on a 250. Both races came down to a bike length apiece Yep, yeah. at Road Atlanta. This is the old Road Atlanta gravity cavity. So what would happen was... Fritz would lead onto the front straightaway. By turn one, Rich Oliver would go buy him on a two fifty. <laughs> yeah. Okay, right underneath him would run him all the way to the exit. To, gone. He would check out. Rich would check out on him. Okay, because the two fifty handled so well through the S's. Then on, what happened yeah. was the Yama Monster would reel him back in down the back straightaway, pass him before gravity cavity, and then Fritz would control him through the last corner up until they got to one. Right. Yeah. It's. One of those situations where we see the Yamaha the Yamaha from two or three years ago in MotoGP versus the Ducati, if it can roll through the corners and or do whatever it needs to do in order to to create the speed, they're fine. That's what Gagne looks like right now. Gagne yeah. seems to have one option on how to go fast, where Beaubier and Heron have multiple options on how to go fast because they have the advantage of having that extra grunt out of the corner and the more top end. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. that's where I
1: – Go. Sorry. Go ahead, Gita.
0: Yeah. So if Gagne gets out front and can control the pace and can control the lines, I think he's good. But the question is, what motorcycle will they fix and will they have ready for him to attack? Because I think the biggest problem is, when you look at Tony Elias, when he came into the sport, it was easy. As soon as you figure out how to outbreak Tony, you could race him, right? It just took everybody two years to figure out how to outbreak Tony. But this Ducati and this BMW keep evolving. And just when you think you haven't figured out halfway through the season, oh, he's going to struggle here in this part of the corner. They figured it out. And so now you have a bike that you're going like, oh, crap. Now what do we do? bobier has got the front end he needs and he's able to do this or that. So it's a very interesting, very interesting year. The Yamaha is amazing. I don't, I'm not taking anything away from no, the Yamaha. No, it's but just know, older. It's an older it's, bike versus yeah. two new bikes. And that's right. they're going to figure some stuff out. And I think that as frustrating it is for Richard Stamboli, he's also a little bit excited about trying to figure these things
1: out. Well, he always is. I mean, he's up all the time. And, and you know, he'll be up s- sleepless to try to figure it out. And that's why I think it was pretty cool to see Gagne run those guys down in the race three and really look like he had the pace to continue to go forward over and over and over again, had, you know, he's a couple laps shy. He got up there a little bit late, let those guys get out to three or four seconds, and he, he reeled them back in from a long way back. It's going to give a rider a lot of confidence with that. And to your point also, Greg, about the BMW, you got to give a tip to to Beaubier because he came back on Sunday and raced on a chassis that he thought was so inferior. He went with the, the newer World Superbike chassis that's got different bracing and this and that. And he ended up doing just as well on Sunday as he had done on you know uh, Saturday and and at the ridge and things like that. So the Tyler's guys, man, they have their shit together. They're obviously doing a very good job, as does Warhorse. And of course, we always know Attack does. And it's it's really making out for a fun year. I'm really excited now that know that we have three races at Pitt. because um, I mean, fitness is gonna really be a key at that place. That place looks like it works you a lot. And oh yeah. Three full lap, three full. You know, super bike races are are going to be good there. So, as far as getting back to like the silly, the look, like, I, I don't even want to really get into it too much. I I hated the call. I think that uh, it's. I don't care about. But
0: for those that did, for yeah, those that the, didn't see it, yeah. five five or so laps to go to the end as Gagne was reeling everybody in. He gets a two second penalty because he went an inch or two into some green paint. That was said, if you go into the green paint, you're going to get a penalty because of safety, blah, blah, blah. He gets it. Uh, the internet has exploded in terms of Moto America stuff because instead of just leaving it the way it is, they decided to put a post up about it, and which I think was just ill-timed. Because the thing to remember is it's the AMA-FIM North America that enforces these rules, not Moto America. Why Moto America sticks their nose in the middle of it and right. does a quote and yeah. posts a story about it, I, I don't understand. It's a two-second penalty penalty. Gagne would have probably a 41-point lead or 42-point lead instead of a 39-point lead. Yeah, Is it going to really make a difference at the end of the year? It could, but... I
1: want to know who deems it unsafe. Number one, I want to know who deems that part unsafe. I don't remember any bikes ever getting in the wall at turn 11, and now that's been pushed back even over the years. Number two, I rode there on Monday, and the green paint that you're talking about has nothing but pavement after it. There's no... The bike is upright, there's pavement after it. There's no dirt. It's not like you're going to run off onto the grass or have a lip or any of that. The problem I have is when somebody tells me that it's, it's more for safety reasons, because I can tell you right now, if there's a safety issue, there's about 50 guys that are racing on a weekend that will come and tell Moto America, hey, there's a safety issue here, or there's a safety issue there. Until that becomes an obvious threat as far as safety goes, I just want race direction. Just let the races run. We don't need to go down the path of what we've seen overseas. It's, it's too frustrating and we legitimately had Gagne catching those two guys at the front. And it took the wind out of the sails of a lot of people I think to know that all of a sudden Gagne and you got to remember too it's not like MotoGP right now where we can tell the riders on their dash that they have a t- 2 second penalty, right? So you take a guy like Heron, Heron's a fighter. How it would have been really bummed, it would have been a real bummer had Heron been close enough to Gagne to do something with him on the last lap when he didn't really have to. So it puts, puts Heron more at a risk in my opinion of I'm going to try to go buy this guy and he doesn't know that he's got two seconds on Jake Gagne who's directly in front of him. He doesn't know that. So the thing that you got to remember is, is there, I have no problem with doing things for safety, but when they tell me that that was done for safety reasons, the part of the green paint that Gagne ran over there is zero safety problem with that at all. He's completely upright. And well, yeah.
0: the the other, the other to add to your point, who, who who painted the green paint there?
1: And it comes it, in did towards the, the race. That's and say, what's funny. It yeah, comes yeah. in towards it was, the track. It
0: came to a point, right? Like towards the racetrack. And it's I'm like, did, did the track do it? Then they showed up. Anyway, look, it's it's in the past now. The the question is, what are they gonna do to address this issue? We don't go we don't go to green paint on every single track. Yeah. If if this is but if this is something that they're gonna start doing they need to come up with a system that makes sense. Meaning, they're going to have to come up with a flagging procedure because the biggest problem I have is how do you not give the? It's five laps to go or six laps to go or whatever it was. Yeah. How do you not give the guy a warning? Well, I that's mean, come on, it's, man. And, and like, again,
1: they're going to go back to. How's he we told to everybody know we hit in the, the riders green paint. meeting. We told everybody in the riders meeting. It's a two-second penalty. There is no this. There is no that. Okay, look. For one, there's, like I said, there's zero safety. Greg, let me ask you this. If where he ran over was just blue and white, it wasn't green, where he ran over. If they're deeming where yeah. that green paint comes in is dangerous, which there's zero danger there whatsoever, if they're deeming that dangerous, if it was blue and white, would they have considered that to be dangerous too? That's why I don't understand. So you're basically letting paint define something like that. And it's right. again, great. Let, let me let when, me clear
0: let me clear something up. I want to clear something up to everybody real quick, okay? If you saw the race, you saw P.J. Jacobson going over the white line, okay? Yep. (laughs) Look, as Jason's saying, paint shouldn't define. The white line around a racetrack is called a fog line. It is not the edge of the racetrack. If you're educated a little bit about racetracks, you know the white line is completely irrelevant and doesn't belong in this conversation. The green paint is put there to simulate grass, dangerous, whatever you know what but it has nothing to do with a white line the edge of a racetrack is the edge of a racetrack it's literally where the pavement stops it's not a white line the white line that PJ's going over is inconsequential jason you brought up a good point before this podcast just go look at a moto gp race at mugello okay yep. everybody runs over heaps of paint on the on the exit of pit lane during the race, during practice, all that kind of stuff. Yep. When they're drafting, it, they it, go over
1: that little. They, they go over the whole right side of the, all the paint that's there. Whole yep.
0: right side of it. Yep. Doesn't matter. The white line on a racetrack is called a fog line. Yeah. Okay. It's literally meaning that it would be like if for some reason you know, look if you're if you're in fog and you're on you're you're on a public road, if you're trying to stare down down road and you can't see anything. What do you naturally do in order to keep yourself in the lane? (laughs) You look (laughs) for the white lines. You look right down at your front wheel, whatever, at the white line on the left or whatever it is. That's what it's called. Okay. So that's that. Anyway, let's not talk about this any further. We're getting deep into this thing. It, It is what it is. We'll have to see what they decide to do. In Super Sport, Jay, it was our extended race. It was a total of 56 minutes and 52 seconds by the time our leader hit the flag because. No red flags. Loved it was it. good. So they're supposed to be around the 55-minute mark. They can you know, tip of the cap to Moto America. There were some incidents. They got them cleaned up. But Chavi Forres ends up winning 12.6 seconds over Josh Hayes. Ty Scott in third. Mesa in fourth. T. Cobbs. Jake Lewis. David Anthony. C.J. LaRoche. Owen White, uh, Owen Williams. I think that's his first top 10, isn't it, Jay? I think. It is. In you Super almost Sport. said
1: Owen Weichel.
0: And I know <laughs> Dude, uh, I heard wow. that wow yeah and it yeah it's, it's 11 o'clock at night for me and uh and Andy Debrino in in front of Damien Jagalov uh, I thought it was a great race there were a few DNFs but they got them cleaned up they got them out of the way um the bummer was front tire now the thing that's interesting is was tire strategies Hayes's strategy ended up being exactly the opposite of what he told me just moments before the race, which was they were going to go rear tire only. But then Josh explained it to us, Jason, uh, you were there, right? When yeah. you explained it. I could, yeah. yeah. So tell us
1: what Josh decided to do and what he said about it. We saw the rear tire was still okay. So we thought, let's just change the front on its own. And look, it's, it's, it's one of those things. We have seen it so many times at Daytona and other places you could practice a pit stop a million times. And when it comes right down to it, you have one little problem. And that's exactly what happened, unfortunately to Josh's team. Now, one of the things that I was going to say that you did, that was pretty incredible was you said in the telecast, you're like, that probably cost Josh at least 15 seconds. Like you just said it off the cuff. There was no clock there. There was no, there was nothing. And it cost him exactly 16.1. Like you were, one second oh, off, yeah, because, yeah. because he came back on on his, after his first flying lap, he was sixteen point one back, and I'm like, that was pretty clever that you that you did that. But those guys just struggled mm-hmm. to get that front wheel in. I don't think that there's anybody in the paddock that wouldn't have given Josh that win had he had a perfect pit stop. And I talked to Chavi a lot on Monday. He was very gracious and very good, and he's like, you know, he's he 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 self admitted, he said like. We called those two big front end slides of his pretty big. And I said, the, it's funny what the difference between 47.3 and 47.8 is. Just by backing off just by backing off half a second, he could run the pace. But Hayes was capable of still going more. You know, He was still capable of going uh, fast. And to Josh's credit, he went 27.3 with two laps to go or three laps to go on a Dunlop tire that had all those laps on it. The uh, Dunlop rear, obviously, that had all those laps on it. So basically for Chavi, once he knew he had that lead, he could kind of roll around in the low 40 uh, low 28s because nobody else was doing that time anyways when you look Greg at the fastest laps of the race it's Chavi Fores and Josh both at one. the next best is 280 by Tyler Scott so those guys had almost a full second you know on the rest of the field so Chavi once he saw he had sort of 15 second lead it was just i can roll around and do low 28s or high 27s till the end of the race and i don't have to run any risk of the front tire getting worse but Nevertheless, you know, Josh wrote amazing as, as he always does. Um, it was a shame to see that happen for him. Ty Scott, really good job. Mesa, Mesa never really came into this one. I thought he would be a lot closer. I didn't get to talk to him to find out like sort of what happened there. Um, but he, he ended up fourth kind of a ways back. What's your, like, what's your take so far on the, on the extended races? What's your take? uh
0: you know now that we've had one that was kind of like weird with weather and all that stuff and one that went flag to flag i mean personally i think that there is a place for it but i what i'd like to see is three of them and then you make like a triple header kind of a championship inside the championship like whoever scores the most
1: points within the extended race thing
0: yeah, add all three of them together. They get a little bit of a bonus. Maybe the team gets 10 grand or, you know, not like money grows on trees. But, you know, I think that that's the only way you do
1: it. I think I other see what you're than saying. That- I, like, I like that. It's kind of like the Triple Crown and Supercross, right? That you, that you're yeah, kind about, of right? like, yeah, exactly. Similar like. Yeah, yep. And and what, what do you yeah, think, ma- too? What do you think also? Like, I was thinking, you know, I don't know. It, I think it would be kind of cool. Like, look, people want to see Josh Hayes. They want to see Chobby Forrest and Ty Scott. They want to see those guys. What do you think of like a 10-lap sprint race on Sunday? Yeah, I, I,
0: that's kind of being battered around. I mean, is I, it? I'd probably rather see like something a little shorter, like an eight-lap
1: sprint race. Oh, eight or 10, whatever it is. I mean, it seems yeah, like something like that, depending but on the track I, length.
0: I think that that's, you know, in talking to a guy like Teague Hobbs, for instance, who, you know, Teague, he, they didn't quite have the right strategy. They, his team was really banking on red flags and it never materialized and he said you know it was a 38 lap race and he said with 20 laps to go his front tire was blown mm. and although he admits he learned a ton about riding you know on like how to manage that he was like dude i, I shouldn't be going 4 seconds a lap slower than who who are you? i i I missed who you're talking about right now who you said T, T. Hobbs oh T Hobbs okay T. got Hobbs. it got it okay yep so i spoke with him after the race and and his his uh point to me it wasn't even really a point. Like we weren't talking about, I was just asking for his thoughts and he's just like, I just wish I had another chance to ride Laguna, right? Like I wish I had another opportunity. So if we do have a problem, we get a second crack at it and you gotta, you gotta, you know, really take that in context because you and I come from a place where we used to race one race a weekend in each class. Yeah. And now that double headers are standard, this is the standard in which they only know these younger riders. Right? So so they go, it's nice if I fail or, you know, don't have a great result and learn a bunch in race one, especially for a guy like T Hobbs, who's in his freshman super sport season. You have to go, yeah, you know, I, I kind of understand what you're saying. So, yeah, I agree with you, Jay. I think if that's the context of it, that maybe a nice short, you know, little 30 minute Supersport program instead of a one hour program that we normally do
1: would be kind of cool. And then you. So if they u- would have done like, th- so like basically if they would have done 30 laps instead of 38, make it a 30 lap race with a mandatory. No, no, no.
0: I still, no, no, no. I still think. Oh, okay. You're I still, still like think the hour that long. 50, I'm okay. saying, yeah, I'm saying like you do Saturday or, you know, that's the problem. It's like, when would you do it? Right. Maybe you do it, uh, on, you know, you do the extended races on Saturday hour and, you know, hour 30 minute TV program. And then you do a 30 minute super sport program on Sunday, gives them a second chance to ride. You know, eight laps. But either way, I think what you do is you, other than just the fact that that extended race is worth double points, right? Fifty points for a win. I think you put something else at stake. You know, you 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 make it mean something yeah. else yeah. inside the in as well as points in the championship to incentivize people to really get after it. But if they, you know, I think two of these a year, you know.
1: I'd, yeah I'd rather i think keep- i think you're right like two or two a year is fine. and i think that you if you had like a little 10 lap sprint race or something on the sunday that you could um that you could include that in your triple crown format like you were talking about i think that would be like yeah. like almost like that what world superbike does right now with their half points you know with the mm-hmm. with the, the sunday sprint race you could do like a half yeah. point thing they double the points on the big on the on the extended and you could half point the the sprints maybe or something on um. Oh, whatever. I know. I'd much rather see that than a B race for hooligans. Yeah. Like we had at Laguna. King of the King
0: of the Baggers happened, by the way. Yeah. Hayden Gillum ends up winning over Raspoli and Bobby Fong after a, a comical last corner, last <laughs> lap. In a way, <laughs> I mean, yeah. comical for us, in a way, because you had Kyle Wyman chasing down Tyler O'Hara. Tyler O'Hara makes a just a great move at the top of the corkscrew, and then honestly checked out on. On Kyle, like he, Kyle wasn't even in a position to attack. <laughs> he wasn't. But, but Tyler O'Hara didn't. Are you talking about two very talented motorcycle racers? Tyler O'Hara goes into turn eleven and just goes, "Nah, I don't want to win this thing." Boom, down he goes. Kyle Wyman's sitting back there going, "Oh my gosh, look, that dude just crap." Boom, now he's on the ground, and then Hayden Gillum's going, "Okay, thanks, appreciate it," and he he cruises on to the win. That's why I say it was kind of comedy. It's comedy because. You just don't expect it from Tyler O'Hara or Kyle Wyman, either one of them. But the fact that Kyle lost that momentary lapse of concentration, but he came back in race two and he was able to beat a, a very hard charging Raspoli by seven tenths of a second. Hayden Gillum was only a second back. So Harley Davidson lockout again. It was, a uh, you know, a Gillum Rispoli and Bobby Fong in race one, uh, and with Tyler O'Hara picking it up, finishing fourth. So what that does for the championship, Jay, is Kyle Wyman leads only five points ahead of Raspoli. So Raspoli, four podiums in a row. Kyle Wyman, you know, he, he's he got five wins. He's got a third place, and he's got that, that one seven-point finish. Hayden Gillum is only 18 points back. Tyler O'Hara is just, you know, out of it, 41. I mean, they only have what? Do they have two rounds left in this season? Well, unfortunately, Jason and his connection kind of dropped out, so I'm just going to finish this podcast up myself. Uh, in the Revit's Twin Cups category, Twin Cup category, um, Rocco Landers beats Gus Rodeo four seconds. Dominic Doyle in third, and Blake Davis in fourth, and then Gus Rodeo ends up winning after Rocco Landers threw it on the ground. Filippo Rovelli, the Italian who came in on the Team Iso Yamaha, ends up in second. Blake Davis in third, Kayla Yakov in fourth, and Dominic Doyle. So Gus Rodeo leads Blake Davis by three points and Rocco by 18 in that championship. Super hooligans, it was Jeremy McWilliams who does the double in that one, and Tyler O'Hara and Jeremy McWilliams are tied in points. Moving real quick on to pro motocross. Well, Jet Lawrence is still clean. He went 1-1. So, so far on the season, he's got 300 total points. They still have, let's see, Spring Creek, Washugal, uh, Unadilla, Buds Creek, and Ironman left. So, there's a lot of opportunity for him to make up ground. And Tom Vialli ends up winning, going 1-3 in 250 class with Hayden Deegan leading that championship by a slender five points over Hunter Lawrence, who zero points at Southwick for him. Don't forget to check out this weekend. World Superbike's going to be in Imola, Italy, a place that Garrett Gerloff hasn't been to before. So you definitely want to check that out. Well, thanks for joining us for the Greg's Garage pod with coach Jason Pridmore. Sorry, Jason couldn't finish this thing up with us, but these things happen. So we will be back next week to talk about World Superbike and Pro Motocross and MotoGP is getting started up relatively soon. So we'll be talking about some of that. Don't forget to check out our MotoGP Fantasy Greg's Garage pod with Jason Pridmore. And for Jason Pridmore, who's not here, thanks so much for checking out the podcast. And we will talk to you next week.